praise God for how he's used you in our lives beyond measure. And uh, we think back 15, 16 years ago when we first met up and talked and prayed and how God has honored his name and caused so many from your church to be a part of the work there in the Czech Republic uh, for Julie and Gina, for your ongoing investment there in the cause of the gospel. So I just want to affirm to you, God is doing great things here. I'm so blessed and thankful to God to see his glory exhibited and put on display in your fellowship, your church. So we're thankful for you. I'm always humbled by the uh, opportunity to come and minister God's word to you. Uh, we love God's word. In fact, I saw earlier, I love what you have here, praising God with passion, preaching the word with precision, praying to God with fervency and progressing in evangelism and discipleship. I think I'm going to copy those and take them back to Michigan, John. I love those because they're all word-based, right? It's all from what God says in his word about what are to be the treasures that we pursue for his glory in the local church. And so we thank God for his goodness to us and the opportunity to be together this morning. Let me remind you, every time we meet as God's people, we camp around this inspired revelation from him, the word of God. Amen? It's okay if you want to respond amen, okay? I know you're not charismatic, but that's okay. Uh, God's word is a living book that speaks with power to us every time we open our hearts to what it says. And let me remind you in Hebrews 4, verse 12, what the scriptures there say. It says, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is God's living logos that always does its work in the hearts of those that open their lives to it and are submissive to it. And I'm going to get right to the text, okay? I just love God's word. You love God's word. Let's get right into 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's hear God speak to us this morning about what he wants us to see from his very word. 2 Peter 3, 10 to 13. And let me ask you, make your way there to 2 Peter 3. Just preface this by mentioning one particular thing that happened this week. We're driving up the coast on uh, Highway 1, and Sonia says, wow, a text message just came in from someone that we respect and know very well, and it said this. It said, in fact, we didn't hear all the, the uh, specifics, but the text read like this, that they had just, this individual had just received news that North Korea had fired an intercontinental ballistic missile toward LA, no kidding now, okay, and it would go off and detonate in two hours. Now, we didn't have time to verify this, and I didn't know, like, where is this from and who said this and all that. There's a text message. I'm thinking, whoa, this could be it. This could be the beginning of the end, and here we go, the end of the world as we know it. And I began to think of all this stuff. Where are the kids, and who's here, and who's there? And then I thought, God is at the throne. God is ruling and reigning. No matter, matter if whatever is happening in the world, he has a perfect plan he wants us to understand, and he wants us to be gripped by and moved by and changed by. So we're going to look together at what God has to say to us about the end of the world and living in light of the end of the world. Let's say it like this. There is a terminus to life as we know it in this world, a terminus, an end point. Yes, history will not and cannot go on forever. While we were there in the Czech Republic, we used to take the metro line. Those of you that have been there on a short-term mission understand that. We used to take the B line, which would go into Prague, and at the end of the day, we'd get back on that tram, metro, and go to the end. And invariably, no matter how far we want to go further, there was an end stop. And it would go like this. That it was, there was a recording that would always go off before it reached that end stop. Ukončete vystup a nastup. Okay? Metro se zavira. Get off the tram. The metro has come to an end. End. Done. Get off. 
So too, beloved, one day this world as we know it will come to an end. God, the creator of history, is the culminator of history. And we're going to see this morning, the great part is this. He shows us how it will all come to an end. And he shows us how, therefore, we are to live in light of the end of history. Now, here's the great part. It shows us for the Christian how to be prepared and how to enjoy the confidence that we have as we look forward to that. It's fantastic news to the child of God, and this is frightening news to those who do not know God. So let's look at the text together. Let's look now at how God tells us about the end of the world and how we must live in light of the end. 2 Peter 3, 10-13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will, be, will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is God's word. And Peter the Apostle, as he writes these words, he is so concerned because one of the major reasons he's writing these words is so that he warns the readers against false teaching, against a false understanding of what's coming. He wants to safeguard them and safeguard us from wrong thinking about the end of the world and the return of Christ. We must think rightly as God has us see it here. Just as in our day, so too in Peter's day, Scoffers were rampant that were running around there saying of Christ, look at chapter 3, verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? In other words, Christ died and never came back, and from the looks of things, he never will. Everything will go on just as it always has. There is no end of the history as we see it now. Now, from the text before us here, we'll find the answers to three pressing questions. Number one, first question. How will, will the world end? How will it come to a terminus? Number two, how can we enliven that prepare? And thirdly, why is this great news? How will it end? How can we prepare? And why is this, therefore, great news? First off, in respect to the end of the world, Peter shows us its certainty. It's certainty. He puts it so clearly there in verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. Will come. There's no maybe, there's no probably, this is absolute certainty. And friends, we must say it like it is, it really doesn't matter at all what you feel or think will happen. Christ will come again. It is inevitable, it is inescapable. There's a woman who worked for the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, and she was trying to track down delinquent taxpayers, those that didn't pay their taxes. And on one occasion, she called and she was patched in through a ham radio operator in the distant Aleutian Islands of someone at sea that she was trying to try find where they were. Two hours later, this IRS operator, a worker, managed to contact this taxpayer who was at sea on a fishing boat. And after the woman identified herself as being with the IRS in Utah, there was a long pause by that fisherman. 
Then over the static from the distant seas, she heard these words, ha ha, come and get me. Ha ha, come and get me. Well, the IRS may have trouble in getting guys like that that are trying to evade being caught. But beloved, God doesn't. When Christ returns, he will go after all those who have tried to evade him, and he will get them. He will get them. Now, it doesn't even matter what one believes, whether one believes or not what's here, whether one looks forward or not to what's coming. Jesus is coming back as the judge of the world, and he cannot be stopped. He is unstoppable. For you see, if the Lord would never return, injustices like the Holocaust and the martyrdom of millions would never be made right. There would be no justice. And the longing for world peace and joy and hope would be a mere illusion. And if Christ would not come back, the curse of sin in this world would never be reversed. And ultimately, evil would win and life would be one cruel joke. Now let's be clear on what's coming that Peter's talking about here in our text in verse 10. Look there again. Notice the phrase there, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. What is he talking about here? Well, it's not some 24-hour period, but rather it's a specific time of coming divine judgment. That term day of the Lord is used 20 times in the Old Testament and four times in the New. Sometimes it points to near historical judgments, like when God dealt with Babylon in Isaiah 13, or Egypt in Jeremiah 46, or Edom in Obadiah verse 15, or even Israel in Zephaniah chapter 1. Yet here what Peter's talking about the, with that phrase, day of the Lord, it usually, and here it's speaking about, Christ's future intervention in history. A coming intervention by Christ in history when he breaks in and accomplishes his perfect will. Isaiah 13 describes that as a time of desolation. Joel 2 defines it as a time of darkness. And then Zephaniah depicts it as a time of destruction. Desolation, darkness, destruction. So we can summarize the day of the Lord as a time of great distress when God, which God brings upon the entire world. Now, there's one Old Testament prophet who provides us with more information about the day of the Lord than any other prophet. Who is that? It is Isaiah. Isaiah. And listen to Isaiah the prophet's chilling words in Isaiah 13, verse 9. He says this, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. This is what Peter has in mind as he writes this word, the words in our text. In fact, this is key. He identifies the Old Testament picture of the day of the Lord with the New Testament second coming of Christ. He brings those together. Let's sketch very basically an overview of eschatological timetable, what is on the scene, what's coming from the time of Christ coming to the future. We know that when our Lord Jesus Christ came in his incarnation, he promised he would return once again for his church. That's the rapture. That's what we look forward to. John 14, 3, I will come again and receive you unto myself. That inaugurates then the day of the Lord, which begins with the time called Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. Revelation tells us we know very well that there's seven year of judgment that ends with the battle, the battle of Armageddon. After that, Christ will come to earth to consume the wicked. The day of the Lord is then completed at the end of the thousand-year literal millennial reign of Christ when he rules and reigns on this earth. 
And that is called the Battle of Gog and Magog, the final battle in this world. So what we see here then, the future day of the Lord, Peter describes, extends from Christ's second coming all the way to the final ending of evil following the millennium. Now keep this in mind. This is what Peter's talking about. This is the final time when God will judge his enemies and vindicate his righteousness. This is it. Now that's the certainty that Peter has in mind. We must also have in mind. And what follows that now, Peter zooms in on the catastrophe, the catastrophe. Notice again in our text, God tells us the day of the Lord will come like a what? The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The word is kleptos, from which you get the word kleptomaniac. Now, some of you have had the unfortunate situation where someone has broken into your car, into your house, and taken something from you, stolen it from you. The name of the game is what? It is stealth. Catching you off guard when you least expect them to break in. In military warfare, that's what makes America's F-22 Raptor so dangerous. Its coming cannot be detected until it's too late. Then destruction. So to hear Peter's talking about the day of the Lord that will break forth unexpectedly. Turn with me if you have your text open. Hold your finger there, but go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 and 3. Paul is talking about that same day. Look what he says here. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like, there it is again, just like a thief in the night. Unexpectedly, it will come upon you. In Matthew chapter 24, our Lord himself warned his, his disciples of this coming day. Matthew 24, verse 42, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. Be ready, he's saying. You, you won't be, he's coming when you don't think he's coming. Now so many individuals in the last 2,000 years have tried to predict Christ's second coming. They try to say, we know, we have a revelation, we'll tell you when it's going to happen. For example, Hal Lindsey, who we recall wrote years ago, that late great planet Earth. He predicted, Hal did, that the Lord's coming would be in 1988. Didn't happen. Then later he moves his date forward to 2007. Doesn't happen again. We say, nice try, Hal, you're off. Then Harold Camping claimed in 1992 that the return of the Lord would be, at the end of the, end of the world would be, in, two, in 1994, 1994, Camping says. That doesn't happen. Camping says the same tactic. He updates his forecast to be 2011. Well, if Hal and Harold and all the other hucksters would have made those prophecies in the Old Testament era, what would have, to have happened to them? They would have been underneath a pile of stones laying there dead. False prophets, false teachers. Christ says, Matthew 24, 34, no man will know the day or the hour. And what he is saying is this. It's not just that you can't predict it. He's saying you therefore better prepare for it. You better prepare for it. That's the thrust. That's what Christ is saying there. So let's look now at the cataclysmic horror that's soon coming upon this world. It is the most fearful time in the history of the world. Look at verse 10 back in our text in 2 Peter. 
We're given three dreadful descriptions of this day of the Lord. First of all, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The Apostle Peter, we know, would have been with Christ when he heard such similar words in Matthew 24. Matthew 24, 35. Christ said to him then, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And now he tells him, Peter, this is how it's going to happen. When he talks about heaven, he's not referring to the place of God's dwelling. He means the physical, visible universe we see above us. It includes all the planets, the constellations, and the vaulted expanse. That's the heavens that Peter has in mind. Isaiah 34, verse 4 uses it this way. And all the hosts of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. Now we know that the Old Testament period, even the New Testament, their scrolls were kept rolled up. And if unwound and placed on the floor and given a gentle nudge, what would happen to that scroll? It would wind up inside itself. Some of you maybe perhaps remember days gone by with the old shades, you know, you pull down. Remember those things? I don't think they hardly make those anymore. I remember as a kid the dreadful experience when you pull that thing down, the latch didn't catch, and they go flying up, zing with that. They go wham, 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 around a circle. So quickly, they scare the living daylights out of you. You can't prepare for it. You don't know what's going to happen. Friends, what we see here, this is the way that Peter is saying this is how the cosmos will wind up so unexpectedly. It'll disintegrate It'll with a deafening roar. That word roar is important there. It's rosidon. It was used by the Greeks to describe three things, this word roar. Pass away with a roar. It describes the sound of a rock splashing into the water. It describes the whizzing sound of an arrow flying through the air. And it describes also the ominous sound of thunder. But Peter here is describing something far more chilling than all those three things put together. For the final roar signaling the end of the cosmos comes from what? It comes from a consuming fire. Now, this is far beyond the Revelation 8, verse 7, tribulational judgment on the earth, which will be burned up with fire, when the third of the earth will be burned up with fire. Peter tells us, look in the text, secondly, the elements will be what? Will be destroyed with intense heat. The word elements here is fascinating. It's stochia, which is the name given by the Greeks for the word alphabet, the alphabet, the basic alphabet in Greek. Here, Peter uses it, to, uses it to refer to the material world. It describes the elemental substances that constitute matter, which we know is made up of atoms. Peter here, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit as he pens his word, he is describing the disintegration of the atomic structure of matter. Listen, God made it all. God put it all together. Colossians 1 tells us he sustains all things by the word of his power. And here, Peter says, this can all be undone. God will take the protons, the neutrons, the electrons within atoms and literally loose them. Now some respond, I knew it. I just knew that Iran or North Korea were going to destroy the world with the atomic bomb. Here I just knew it's going to happen. Here it is. Watch this. Friends, remember, the day of the Lord is when God ends the world his way. God is at the helm. God ends it when he wants to end it, not any country. Look at the third descriptive phrase in Peter's words. The earth and its works will be burned up. Burned up. Now there are some misguided minds that look at these words and say, oh no, we don't need to take this statement literally. It's just a figure of speech. Why do they do that? 
Because people don't like the fire and brimstone idea of God's judgment. It doesn't go well with people's thinking. They prefer rather a softer, kinder, friendlier God who will turn a blind eye to sin. But as always, what God says is what God means, and he means what he says. In Noah's day, God judged the wicked world with a flood. And here Peter is showing us he will destroy it once again, not by water, but by fire. This will be with an intense heat that goes beyond what we can imagine. All will literally go up in flames. Now, somehow, as God has made us, male and female, boys and girls, I can remember as a kid, I had a fascination with fire. I love fire. And the problem is my dad was a fireman with the L.A. City Fire Department. It wasn't good uh, advertisement for the, for the department. One day when he was at work putting out fires, we were at home lighting fires. My older brother and I, we used to go up to the, to the uh, foothill of the Burbank Mountains. We lived right below there. And I was the one with the, the arsonist with the matches in my pocket. And we had some friends with us. We had a competition, the two groups, two pairs, who can make the biggest fire. And we had one going pretty good, and my brother's going to outdo us. As an older brother, certainly he did. He decided it would burn faster if you lit the fire right in the, in the brush that went up the mountain. Before we knew it, the flames were bigger than all of us put together. We had branches. We were kicking dirt, trying to beat it out, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I thought, this is the end of it all. You know, I'm going to prison. The whole city of Burbank is going to be engulfed in flames, and I'm going to hear from my dad, too. Worse than that. So we, we run home. We say, Mom, the, 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 the mountains are on fire. And she looks out and sees the smoke everywhere. And she says, I know. She says, you know who did it? She yeah, we know. <laughs> we did, Mom. <laughs> she calls the apartment. They come to put up the fire. And I can still remember to this day, standing at the front window of her house, waving to the firemen as they drove by and put up the fire. Listen, when this world is destroyed by fire, there will be no fire trucks with red lights and sirens that will come to put out the fire. For God's fire will consume all. And the writer to Hebrews says this, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Why? Because our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews 12, verse 29. When the earth is burned up, we're told that along with it, so too will all its works be consumed. All will be consumed. What does that mean? I believe this includes all the works of men. The music, the art, the literature, the inventions, the achievements, all those things that man once boasted of will go up in smoke. The Larry O'Brien NBA Award, the Stanley Cup, the Olympic Golds, the Nobel Peace Prize, the Emmys, the Grammys, all of them will be exposed before God as worthless on the day of judgment. John Newton, that beloved hymn writer, in 1779, he captured that truth of the fact that all is gone so quickly if it's not for Christ. He says this in the words of glorious things of thee are spoken. Fading is the world's best pleasure. All its boasted pomp and show, solid joys and lasting treasure none but Zion's children know. He said it so well, spot on. What a jaw-dropping reality. Everything that unsaved man lives for, all that he seeks to accomplish, all that money can buy him, it will all soon burn up before his eyes. We've had this uh, summer outreach at the church in Michigan there. We call it the mega sale. We have a massive, absolutely massive parking lot sale when all the city donates their junk to us and then they come back several weeks later to buy it back, just exchange. And we have two 40-foot containers. We literally pack full of tons and tons of garbage. 
And one of the, fa the favorite forward thing we say as we go through that stuff is it's all going to burn. But watch this. The things that we sell, the garbage that we sell are things that people have literally given their lives for. Those were treasures that they lived for and dreamed of and sacrificed so much for. And then to realize soon that all those things and everything else that they and we ever live for in this world will soon be incinerated and left in the trash heap. It cannot, it will not last. Now that jolts us into reality. That should leave a lump in our throat to realize how much of our lives we give for stuff that's going to burn, that we cannot take with us. And it's even more frightening for us to realize that this fiery judgment Peter's describing doesn't just deal with our stuff. It deals with our souls, our souls. And it forces us to think through the second compelling question. Number two, what can I do to prepare? What can I do to prepare? In light of the coming judgment of God, how ought we therefore to live? Look at verse 11 in our text. Peter tells us, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought we, you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now, don't be mistaken here. At first glance, when you heard that word, that verse read just a second ago, the first mistaken response can often be, well, there's a question there. It sounds like a question. Since all these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought you to be? But notice, there's no question mark. It's not a question. It's an exclamation. It's of astonishment. Beloved, God tells us as Christians to think deeply about our lives and to conform them to eternity. This is a command here. It's like this. If Jesus is coming and he is coming, if he's going to judge the world, how then ought you to live now? What should be different? And here we see the obligation of a child of God to live differently in this world in light of the coming of Christ and the coming judgment. And this is seen, first of all, in our conduct, our conduct. Peter says our lives ought to be marked by what? By holy conduct, that's action. Secondly, it says be marked by godliness, that is the attitude of the heart. Listen, godliness is not acting like something you are not. That is hypocrisy. Godliness rather describes a person who lives a life of worship to God from the inside out. That is godliness. In other words, Christian, every, every choice you make and your entire attitude toward God, that is to be dominated by desire to be pleasing to him. This is the heartbeat of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 9. Remember the apostle Paul? He says this. He says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be what? To be pleasing to him. God, we just want to please you in our lives in this world. We want to honor you and how we go about living. There's no disciple of Christ that was closer to our Lord than was the Apostle John. And no one longed for Christ's return more than the Apostle John. And you recall in his first epistle in chapter 3 what he says there in verses 2 and 3. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. But he doesn't stop there. Watch how that exciting, enthusiastic anticipation of Christ's return affected John's outlook and living. And how it affect ours, verse 3, 1 John 3. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, living with a longing for Christ's return always produces holy living. 
Living in light of Christ in return will always produce holy living. It will cause us to live for what is eternal, what lasts. I can remember as a youngster, in our kitchen, my folks had this little plaque with these two lines on it. And they made an indelible impression in my thinking. You know them. Only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. There's another lesser known yet powerful stanza that flows from that. Only when life, yes, only one, soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat, only when life will soon be past. What an apt reminder for us this morning. The only thing that will survive the day of judgment, the only thing that will not be destroyed is what God has done through lives set apart for Jesus Christ. Now, we're not only to prepare by the right conduct, but also, number two, by the right contemplation, the right contemplation. In light of the end of the world, the apostle Peter says in verse 12, notice what he says there. What should be our driving preoccupation knowing Christ is coming soon? Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. We as children of God here, we are called to look expectantly for Christ's coming. This is not man's day. This is God's day. And that's why the end of the world here is called what? It is called the day of God. Peter said those very words, the day of God. The coming day of God points to essentially the same time as the day of the Lord. The thought of God destroying the cosmos with burning heat and causing all that exists to melt flashes again through Peter's minds. He's thinking of the same thing we just talked about earlier. He can't get away from it. Intense heat. We are told that the searing hot liquid magma that comes from within the Earth's core is 7,000 degrees Fahrenheit. We don't know, but God could very well use that subterranean burning lava to consume the rebellious world that has turned its back on him. Of course, there will be an ongoing eternal death that they will experience. God will vindicate his name in eternal judgment. Well, that day of divine judgment, we see here, we must not only look forward to, but also, did you notice the text says we are to hasten it? Hastening the day of the Lord. What on earth? What is Peter saying? What does he mean by what he's saying? The idea here is that we urge it onward. We accelerate it. Now, this is key for our growth as Christians in Christ. God has sovereignly ordained and chosen when Christ the Son will return in his second coming. But he has also called the child of God to aggressive action. Aggressive action. How? How do we be those that hasten the day of the Lord? What do we do that affects that? Let me tell you, first of all, by prayer. By praying for it. Our Lord Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 tells us this. To pray, thy kingdom come. Thy kingdom come. Pray for the coming kingdom. Secondly, we hasten Christ's second coming by proclaiming it, by proclaiming it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, our Lord says this. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Remember, do you remember why Christ delays his coming judgment to this world? Why is God waiting? Why has God not yet come and removed all wickedness from this planet? 
It's because, so wonderfully, look back in our text there in 2 Peter. Look at verse 9. Back up to verse 9. It tells us of God's heart here in reference to the coming judgment and why he waits. We read there, he is patient, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Here we see the heart of God that is gracious, loving, and patient toward those not yet submitted to his lordship. He does not want them to perish, it says there. And the only way that you or anyone can be spared from that day of judgment and eternal misery is by hearing and responding to God's rescue operation of salvation. That is the only way of escape. What is that? Is that God, the greatest giver, gave Christ the greatest gift to man, the greatest sinner? Why? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life? But don't stop there. Don't forget what follows in John 3, 17. Don't miss a word of that warning. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Then verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For one who gives lip service to Christ but never repents and turns from sin, that individual awaits eternal judgment from God. If you have not made an about face from sin to Christ the Savior, God will not spare your soul. Your soul will be judged forever. And that leads us to number three. Why is this great news? Why is this great news? For the Christian, the child of God, there is no fear in death and there is no fear of this coming judgment. Instead, there's an ex the expectation of the consummation. Look at verse 13, if you would, with me. Here we so wonderfully read, there, verse 13, but according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What's the encouragement here for us? It's that when God makes a promise, he always keeps it. He always keeps it. He promises here is that he, will not, that he will not only wipe out the world, but he will recreate the world. God says he will make new heavens and a whole new earth. Friends, this isn't some makeover to the universe. God is not going to recycle the world and the cosmos. He's going to start anew and make all things new. And that is what, and you have to look at it with me. Go to Revelation 21. Because this is our future. This is our hope. Revelation 21, the first five verses. Look what John the Apostle now anticipates and looks forward to as he's there on Patmos, ready to die. His vision from God. Then I saw, Revelation 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away. And there's no longer any seas. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, right, for these words are faithful and true. Bless God for our hope we will soon anticipate and experience in his presence. And from that flows the consolation, the great consolation. 
Why will there be no more mourning or tears or death or crying or pain in the new world? It is because sin will be no more, will be sin free forever. Sin will be vanquished and it will be replaced with what? Righteousness, righteousness. In fact, we are told that righteousness will characterize the new heavens and the new earth in that kingdom righteousness will dwell and reign. Righteousness will no longer be an unwelcome guest in this world. Instead, it will permeate the eternal home of all Christians. And here's how it works. Watch this. The prophet Jeremiah, he tells us this. He speaks of the coming Messiah and he calls him Jehovah Tzidkenu. And what does that mean? It means the Lord, our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. The Lord Jesus Christ is the righteous one. He will not only fill the new heavens and the new earth with his perfect presence, he will also fill, fully fill forever the lives of all those that have partaken of his righteousness. We will experience the righteousness of Christ fully forever and be sin-free in his presence. Psalm 11 verse 7 says it like this. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. That coming day of God is when God makes all things new. That is the greatest news for one who believes in Christ and has his imputed righteousness. For Christ lived and died and he was made sin for us that we might become what? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That, he, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That great exchange of taking, getting his righteousness and him getting, taking all of our sin on himself. Friends, crying out to Christ is the only way you can be saved from God's future fury of judgment. Christ is the only way to have life abundant and have life eternal. So I plead with you, if you've heard, you've heard the word, you've heard so many messages, but if you have never partaken personally of Christ's righteousness, don't delay in getting right with God. Don't presume upon God. Don't put off repenting from sin and being saved from the wrath to come. And if you do know Christ as your righteousness, as your Lord, as your Savior from sin, then what's your calling to do? Beg others, plead with others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God while there is still time. The hymn writer Fanny Crosby, realizing the truth of this coming judgment, penned a hymn entitled Sound the Alarm. Sound the Alarm. And it goes like this. Sound the alarm. Let the watchman cry up for the day of the Lord is nigh. Who will escape from the wrath to come? Who have a place in the soul's bright home? Sound the alarm, watchman, sound the alarm. For the Lord will come with a conquering arm and the hosts of sin as their ranks advance shall wither and fall at his glance. Sound the alarm on the mountain's brow. Plead with the lost by the wayside now. Warn them to come and the truth embrace. Urge them to come and be saved by grace. Oh, friends, I pray that you will respond to God's grace that you'll make God's grace known to those that are still without Christ, that they will be prepared for that day of judgment. Aaron Burr, the third vice president of the United States, was raised in a godly home and urged to accept Christ by his own grandfather, Jonathan Edwards. Yet Aaron Burr persistently refused to come to Christ. Instead, he declared that he wanted nothing to do with God, and he said he wished the Lord would leave him alone. He achieved some political success, and yet 
Repeated disappointments filled his life and strife filled his life. When Burr was 48 years old, he was in a duel with Alexander Hamilton and killed Hamilton. Burr lived for 32 more years, but was empty and unhappy. And during this sad chapter in his life, he declared to a group of friends, and I quote, 60 years ago, I told God that if he would let me alone, I would let him alone. And God has not bothered me since. Aaron Burr got what he wanted. He died in 1836, a broken man and lost man. And he will forever experience the wrath of God whom he rejected. Oh, bless God, we don't have to end like that. Oh, bless God that we can live in light of eternity and be right with God now and enjoy the joy of walking with Christ every day, knowing that one day we will be fully in his presence forever and worship him at his throne. Would you pray with me and thank God for our living hope? Oh, gracious God, Heavenly Father, these are not light words. These are not simple truths that will come and go. Father, you have given us the truth. And we thank you, God, that our only hope is in Christ. That you have made a way for us to escape the terror that will soon break loose on this world. Oh, Father, may there be none within the sound of these words that would perish in disbelief. May there be none who would refuse to repent. For, God, we know that it it doesn't profit us anything if we have gained the whole world but lost our souls. And, Father, for those who belong to you, I would ask that you would overwhelm us with an ever-deepening sense of the shortness of time and how we must lay up treasures in heaven where moth and rust don't destroy and where thieves can never break in and steal. Lord, would you fill us with contagious joy, with biblical boldness, that we would make the most of opportunities in sharing our hope in Christ with all that we meet. God, may we be faithful to love you and to live for you and look forward to one day seeing our Lord face to face. Father, we pray this for the praise of your glory in our lives and church and for the sake of your Son, whom we love and praise. Amen.